how many of you, like this is quiz day, how many of you watched Rocky and Bullwinkle when you were a child? Okay, that was my favorite. I loved Rocky, but I also, and I liked the moose, you know, who doesn't, you know, like whatever his name was, I can't remember, Mr. Moose. What? Bullwinkle, that's right, Bullwinkle, thank you so much. Some people are awake. So Bullwinkle, and, and the study really wants to feature him this week. No, but Rocky and Bullwinkle, my favorite part was fractured fairy tales. I just love those. And you know, you watch them with your grandkids and they're not getting it at all. And you're just like dying. Like, this is so funny. And they're like, oh, grandma's happy. But I, I remember with Rocky and Bullwinkle, there would always be two titles for the, for the episode. Do you remember that? You know, it's this or it's this. So thank you. This week, and you know what? It's all right to talk out loud. I am a person. I love it when you talk out loud. I don't know if the people next to you do, but I do. But I have two titles for this message. And somebody tried to choose one. I'm like, don't choose. It needs both. And you know who you are because you wooed at the wrong place this morning. So insecurity due to immaturity or maturity brings security. Because what we're going to talk about today is why we have insecurity. And as women, our middle name is almost insecurity. Cheryl Insecurity Broderson. As women, we know insecurity. In fact, I think we do insecurity better than men. Men, you know, they don't really show it, but we show it. We show it when we're checking our bags in and they say, do you have anything lethal in your bag? And not only do we not have anything lethal, but we want to tell them anything in our bag that could possibly be seen as lethal. There is a small four ounce hairspray and there's a blow dryer, but there's no bomb in the blow dryer. And then I have my coffee mug. I don't want you to blow that up. You know, we tell them everything. And then I pack three pairs of pants and there's underwear. I, I do, you know, I do pack and pajamas and Brian says, they don't need all of that. You know that phrase, TMI, too much information. Brian's always going, TMI, TMI, Cheryl, TMI. Because I, I just, it's my insecurity. I feel like I have to tell them more than is necessary. Years ago, I was coordinating, and I used to coordinate weddings, and I was doing this huge wedding. And I was working with a new pastor. And his, I had never met him before, but his last name was Peeper, Pastor Peeper. And, and the more I said Pastor Peeper, the more awkward it got. So I found myself using it over and over again, like ending and beginning every sentence with Pastor Peeper. Like, Pastor Peeper, could you stand here, please? Pastor Peeper. Pastor Peeper, would you like to give an invocation? Peeper Pastor. Pastor Peeper. And Brian's just looking at me going, oh no, she's at her awkward place. And he could see it. Finally, it got so bad that Pastor Peeper looked at me and said, call me by my first name. Tom. Peeper Tom? Tom Peeper? I, I mean, Pastor Peeper Tom? Tom Peeper Pastor? Peeping Tom Pastor? I mean, what? Pastor Peeper Tom? Tom Peeper? I was gone. Brian just looked at me and he just left because he had to go just find a quiet place. Solitary place. Just to laugh. I hate the way my insecurities affect me because I go awkward. And when I'm insecure, I get insecure about everything, everything. Um, I, I'm like 
wait, did I use these recipes? Did I add the flour? Did I not add the flour? Did I add the baking soda? Or did I add the baking soda? Did I add the salt? Or did I not add the salt? I get insecure about everything. And then you have trouble. I have trouble making decisions when I get insecure. Oh, I don't know. Should I go? Should I not go? Oh, what, what, if I go, what will happen? If I don't go, what will happen? Do I have the right clothes? Do I not have the right clothes? Am I too old for this? Am I too young for this? Am I, you know, too grave for this? I have all these troubles just moving forward and making decisions because of my insecurity. And I remain at this immature state. You know, as women, we're always looking for something else to secure us. I have more women that I have met that introduced me, introduced themselves by like, hi, I'm a friend of so-and-so instead of I'm, you know, I'm Kelly McLaughlin. I made that name up. So if there is one, sorry, but you know, instead of just you're you and you're created by Jesus Christ, but they always have to say, I'm the wife of, I, I, you know, I invented the internet, you know, just something to make yourself feel secure. Like I have value. I have value. And we do this because of our insecurity. We're looking for rituals. Hi, you know, I do yoga. Okay. I like you now. Cause you know how to do a downward dog. My dog does a downward dog. I realized that like, oh, honey, that's a downward dog. And Barnabas is doing it. Okay. That has nothing to do with it. I think that's Jasmine's influence on me or rules we follow. I'm a rule keeper. Hello. It's all right. I remember this woman didn't want to give me bracelets for the pool at the hotel I'm staying at. And I I looked at her. I said, you don't have to worry about me. I'm a rule keeper. I had to tell her that. I'm a rule keeper. I'm with you. I understand your legalism. I too am a rule keeper. A relationship we have and the education. I'm a PhD in brushing dogs. I don't know because I don't have a PhD, so I made that one up. Or what career we had or have or the things we own or where we live. But these things don't give us security. That's why we have to keep mentioning them because they're not giving us the security that we crave. And as women, we crave. We crave security. Jesus said in Mark 8, 35, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You see, the more we try to feel secure or secure our lives by anything in this world, the more insecure we feel. Why? Because if we try to secure it by money, we spend it. It gets lost. It's stolen. And we're always worried about who wants our money. Who's going to take my money? Who's going to rip me off? Who's going to do identity fraud? Fame. People are so fickle. Career fired, replaced by a machine, outdated. There's no security there. No security in education because it can be rendered useless or outdated. You know, somebody who's got a degree in science from 1954, there have been so many advancements especially in technology. I mean, I hope you didn't keep your cell phone from 19, you know, 96 because it takes a whole room. A house, fire, foreclosure. I read that 6,400 structures have so far been lost in these last fires. I personally know people who have lost their houses in Northern California and in Malibu. Foreclosure, faulty electricity, plumbing, friendships, move, lose touch, people change, marriage, 
Achievements are forgotten. Religion gives a false fright. You can't even trust in religion because that's, that's man's attempt to reach God or rituals. You know, this is our family traditions and we try to find security in family traditions and nobody's cooperating. And these never give us that security. Insecurities are due to our immaturity. Do you remember how insecure you were as a child? I, my grandchildren, two of my grandchildren, the first time we took them to the beach and we're so excited and they stepped on this sand and they're lifting their foot going, <laughs> because it's giving way under their feet and they're afraid they're going to fall through. You know how they're just so afraid and they have no idea how fun sand is. How fun it is to take home and bring it into the house and watch mom try to clean it up and vacuum. I remember as a child being at uh, my aunt's camp, Camp Friendly Acres, and going up to the dining room all by myself. I was all of six years old and I had walked this long path. At the time, it seemed like it was like three miles long and I went back and I think it's 100 feet. But at the time, it seemed so long. And I was confronted by a nurse when I tried to walk in the dining room. And I have no idea what she said to me, but I turned and I ran as fast as I could back to the cabin, crying, banging on the door. My mom opens it. The nurse is trailing behind me going, I didn't mean to hurt her feelings, but she's covered in a rash. My mom looked at me. I had the German measles. So I wasn't allowed back in the dining room for a while. But I remember being afraid of this woman who was only trying to help me because I was immature. And I didn't understand the phrase German measles. You know, you need to go to bed. I didn't understand those phrases. Of course, you know, as a child, anytime anyone tells you to go to bed, it's an insult. But spiritual immaturity will leave us insecure about our status before God. We will question the validity of our salvation. We'll be unsure about God's grace. How far does it extend? When does it extend? We will ask ourselves questions like, does God really love me? Or what if I backslide? Will I still go to heaven? Or how much can I sin and still qualify for heaven? We will have questions about God's word. What does it say concerning repentance? What is repentance? What am I to repent from and how do I do it? about baptism. How old do you need to be? What is the purpose? Does my infant baptism count? Must I be baptized to be saved? And how many times should I be baptized? Or the laying on of hands. What does this mean? Is it safe? Does it require uh, elders? Can women lay hands on others? What does it accomplish? Or the resurrection of the dead? Will my body my body, rise physically. What happens to my body when I die? Where does my body go? What happens to people who are cremated? Eternal judgment. Is hell real? How could a merciful God let people go to hell? Is hell really forever? It is not wrong to ask these questions. But immaturity can be measured not by our ignorance to the answers, but by our inability to move forward until we have a complete understanding of these things. Amy Grant spoke about trusting God with the unexplained. You know, my dad did not have to explain everything to me before I let him drive me to school. 
He didn't have to say, now, Cheryl, I'm going to turn on the car engine. I'm going to put this key in the ignition. I'm going to turn it. And when I turn it, the engine's going to come to life. I didn't say, wait, wait, wait. How does the engine come to life? Explain to me the function of the pistons. And I've heard this term radiator. What does that have to do with getting me to school? How is this going to work? I didn't have to understand the function of the engine. He didn't have to explain to me everything about the car just to drive me to school. I trusted him. I knew what he was doing. But sometimes as believers, our immaturity and our insecurity is due to the fact that we will not move forward until we understand everything. And there are some things that we will not understand until we're mature, or sometimes until heaven, when everything will be understood. Amy Carmichael said this, but faith is not trusting God when we understand his ways. There is no need for faith then. Faith is trusting when nothing is explained. Faith rests under the unexplained. Faith enters into the deep places of our Lord's words, and blessed is he Whosoever shall not be offended in me, faith having entered into those deep places, stays there in peace. The believers that are addressed in Hebrews were using these questions as obstacles, excuses, and justifications to not go forward or deeper into Jesus. But true faith in God will always press us forward, will always mature us, secure us, and answer our questions. The Hebrews were stagnating in immaturity in Hebrews chapter 6. Their spiritual immaturity was keeping them from moving forward, and it left them in the elementary principles of Christ, verses 1 through 2. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Doctrine of baptism, being identified with Christ fully, being filled with the Holy Spirit, the laying on of hands, the transfer of authority, prayer and leadership, resurrection of the dead, heaven, the final judgment, eternal judgment, questions about hell. They were unwilling to go forward until they fully understood. And the author promised that all would be explained, verse 3, if they would only move forward in Once they moved forward in faith, progressively all the questions would be answered. When Nicodemus came to Jesus with questions in John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that he would never understand these things until he was first born again. If Nicodemus would be born again, then the understanding would come, but the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul the Apostle explained it this way, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, spiritual understanding is progressive. The more we press forward in faith, the more we understand. In fact, in Hebrews 11.3, which we'll be uh, studying next year, The author said, it is by faith we understand. Hebrews 11.3, it's by faith we understand. Understanding comes as we press forward in faith. 
This unwillingness to press forward was keeping them insecure about their salvation. So the author wants to secure them, wants to show them how secure they are. And and what he's saying to them is once you've been enlightened and you've tasted the heavenly gift, you've become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, tasted the powers of the age to come, that this is the state of the mature and the secured. Once you've done this, you're in. You're in. You're enlightened. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You're partakers of the Holy Spirit. You know the goodness of God's word. You, you felt the power, seen the kingdom of God, what, it, what God hasn't planned. And he says, it's impossible. He said, if you could, if there was a possibility that you would fall away, this is what it would mean. It would mean that you'd have to be renewed to repentance. You can't be renewed to repentance. The repentance when we receive Jesus Christ, it's, a, it's that salvation, the moment of salvation. We, we've renounced the things of this world completely. We've changed thinking. Repentance means to change the way you think. So how can you change the way you think again? You've already changed the way you think. And then he says, you, you crucify Christ again, putting Christ to open shame. In other words, it would be to say, to, to have all this happen to you and then to leave it would, as if you were saying Christ's death means nothing to you. And Christ was not sinless. He was just another criminal that deserved to die. And what he's saying is you don't feel that way. You don't feel that way. Christ's death means something to you. You've been enlightened. There are those who remain in this immature state saying, am I saved or am I not saved? And they're not ready to step forward or to go deeper or to invest more of their life or their time or their energy. They're just stagnated. Are they saved? Yeah. They've tasted. They know. They don't want to go back to the world. They believe Jesus' death avails. But then they're like, but... And sometimes, honestly, let me say this. Those who do this are using it as a justification to not forgive others. To to keep sin. To read and and, um, unedifying or to keep these little sins in their life. To make provision for the sin. And so they say, well, until Jesus answers my questions, I can keep these sins. And I'm not giving up these sins until Jesus answers all these questions. I'm not going to really invest in church or, or fellowship until all my questions are answered. The author is seeking to secure them in spiritual maturity. Because once you truly invest everything into Jesus and you go deep into the faith, all your questions are answered. You receive this divine security in your salvation. I don't question my salvation anymore. Is Cheryl really saved? I know I am. I know Jesus. I love Jesus. His death means everything to me. If Jesus' death on the cross means something to you, you're saved. You're absolutely saved. You are enlightened because you know that his death availed for you and covers your sins. You have therefore experienced the heavenly gift. If you believe in the cross of Jesus Christ and that Jesus was sinless and died on the cross for sin, then you've experienced the heavenly gift. 
and you are therefore now partakers in the Holy Spirit. And you are ingesting the good word of God and you are experiencing right now through the forgiveness of sins, the powers of the age to come, and you will not turn away from the Messiah. Their insecurities were due to the fact that they had not gone deep enough, invested enough in Jesus. So he's going to give them now evidence of their salvation. He starts out with this illustration of the soil in verses seven through eight. And he says that the same rain that comes down from heaven has a different effect on two fields. And the one field, this rain produces herbs that are purposeful or useful because the field has been cultivated. It's been prepared. It's weeded. It's plowed. And the seed is planted. So the rain has a purposeful and good effect. But there's another field where nothing has been done to this field. It has never been plowed. The seed has never been planted. No effort has been given to it. And so the more rain it gets, the more thorns and briars come. And the more that field is rejected, it's useless. And it's near to being cursed. And the only help for that field is to be burned. But you see, the evidence, the evidence that you are saved is that The rain coming down, God's word coming down on your life, it's bringing purpose. It's bringing productivity. It is is wanted and it's bringing the blessing of God. Those who are mature, plow the field, plant the seed, are productive and receive God's blessings. But the cursed are those who don't care about changing the field. They don't want their field changed. They're saying to God, don't touch my field. Leave my field alone. And they never even bring the seed to the field. They never plow it up. They never plant. There's no sacrifice, no plowing, no spiritual preparation. And these are the ones who are rejected by God. These are the ones who are near to being cursed, whose end is fire. But the author says, beloved, beloved, this is not your state. He said, We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. So he's going to talk about the evidences in their life that they are saved. There are evidences in your life that are meant to secure you like, oh my goodness, Before I knew Jesus, I would have reacted this way. I just reacted in a whole different way. Jesus is in my life. Spiritual maturity. He is making them secure, showing them evidentiary fact from their own lives about their eternal welfare, about their spiritual productivity, and about the blessing of God in their life. Because why is he doing this? Because the author has these incredible, great, deep truths, glorious truths that he wants to open their eyes to. He wants to show them the great things of Christ and the power of faith. He says, I want want to show you what is yours, what you have. 
if we understood, I remember how Jesus says to the woman at the well in John 4, if you knew who it was who was speaking to you and the gift that he offers you, you would ask him and he would give it to you. You see, as Christians, if we would only realize all that we have through Christ and the gifts that are given to us, oh my goodness, nobody would have to tell us to pray. We're like, let's pray. Pray about this now because that's going to loose the power of heaven. We would bind these things on earth in Jesus' name and we would loose the power of heaven every opportunity we got. The author says, I want I want to spur you on to greater things, the things that come with your salvation. I don't want you to miss out on one gift that God has for you. I want you to have the fullest Christian experience. I want you to realize the wisdom of God. And so in the next chapter, chapter seven, he's going to tell us about Melchizedek. You know, the Bible, as you go deeper into the word of God, as your understanding increases in the word of God, it becomes exciting. I mean, when you read the word of God, sometimes you want to go, oh, oh, oh. Or I've had people, like where I'm doing a Bible study in a smaller group, go, I see it. I see it. And you're like, good, hallelujah. Because all of a sudden you see it. And this is what Adam's sin meant. And this was why we were condemned. And this is why we needed Jesus. And this is what faith looks like. And this is how faith operates. You know, sometimes we were bluffing our way through the Christian walk. I did a class at the Bible college on Christian words and what they mean. And I said to my students, I want you to write down all the words that you really don't know the meaning of, but you've just been bluffing your way because it seems like everybody else at Bible college needs it. You know what words I got? Salvation, (laughs) repentance, redemption, sanctification, promise faith. The author says, I want you to know what these things mean. And the way to do it is to press forward, to go deeper. My dad used to love to sing the song deeper, deeper in the love of Jesus daily. May I go deeper. This is the answer is to go deeper. He wants to spur them on. He tells them that they are the beloved, the saved, the productive, and the evidence that has accompanied their salvation is their work and labor of love in Jesus' name. And he says in verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. He's telling them the fact that you labor shows that you are filled with Jesus. Your labor is empowered by Jesus. Your labor is motivated by Jesus. And your labor is ultimately for Jesus. You wouldn't care about the saints. You wouldn't minister to them. You wouldn't labor if it wasn't for the Spirit of God working in your life. That is evidence that Jesus is in you. And God sees it and he takes note of it. He doesn't forget that. That counts to God. That's evidence. And he says, now it's the time to continue in the same diligence. Verse 11, to the full assurance of hope until the end. He says, you need to continue 
just as you've been doing, but press forward to the full assurance or to the full security. Be fully secured in Christ that you know that you know that you know that you're saved. That you know that you know that you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That you know that you know that you know your sins are forgiven. That you know that you know that you know that heaven is real. That you know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven. That you know that you know that you know Jesus is coming. That you know that you know that you know that God's had a plan. A great, big, wonderful plan that includes you. That you know that you know that you know. Keep growing. Keep doing what you've been doing that you might have the full insurance or the full security of faith. And he says, don't become sluggish. Don't slow down. Don't get mired. When do you become sluggish? You know, I I think of sluggish. Let me give you a word picture, okay? It is running in in the sand on the beach in cement boots. That's sluggish. And that's gonna slow you down. Especially if the boots keep taking sand in. Uh, as you're running on the beach, sluggish. And and that's like when you're slowing down and you're taking burdens on and you're being weighed down by these questions and by your own sin. It will keep you immature and it will keep you insecure and it will keep you from receiving the promises that have been promised to you. It will keep you from the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But he says, instead, instead of being sluggish, imitate those who by faith and patience inherited the promise. In order to imitate, you must watch and observe. You must watch and observe. You must catch the inflections, the mannerisms, which means you're going to have to read about these people. You're going to have to read about those who received the promises. And and we're going to get that a lot in chapter 11. The people who received the promises, what they look like. And what we see with all of them is they exercise two things, faith, belief in God, and patience. And as they exercise both faith and patience, they received the promises that they had been given. And these promises were fulfilled. There is no other way No other way to get the promises of God. You must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11, 6. Because he's preparing them for you. Hebrews chapter 11. And let me say this. Hebrews 11 is a coming. You must plant faith deep in your heart. I believe that seed of faith, that mustard seed of faith, you've got to plant it. And it requires patience. This seed requires patience. You must wait. It's going to require time. Just as a seed that you plant requires time to germinate in the soil, to bud, to spread roots, to break through the ground, and then to grow stronger, branch out, and become a tree that bears fruit. There will always be a time element between the promise God gives you and its fulfillment. There will always be a time element. Think about Joseph who had the dreams, the dreams that his brothers and his father were all bowing down to him as sheaves of wheat and everyone was so mad at him. Then some 14, 15 years later, 
after being sold into slavery, after being in prison, he's elevated to the court of Pharaoh and he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And then here come his brothers in, not recognizing him, asking, asking for food. And what we see is the sheaves bowing down. But think how much time between the dream and its fulfillment. Or Abraham, who we'll talk about, between the time that God says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, to the time that he had Isaac. It's going to require patience. I hate to bring this up. But the way to patience is through trials. That's what James 1 says. That trials, as we go through trials and we see that God always comes through, God always comes through, God always comes through, it gives us patience. And the longer the wait, we can endure because we know that we know that we know. When my dad was about 14 years old, his, his father had a nervous breakdown. My grandfather, Charles Hutchinson Smith, and he went into a catatonic state and he, could, he lost his job because he couldn't move. He couldn't um, talk. He couldn't do anything. My grandmother had to put him in diapers. My grandmother had to go back to work. And my father, at 14 years old, got a paper route. And he was very proud of the fact that he got his driver's license at 15 years old. He got a special permit, which could happen back in those days, so that he could deliver as many papers as possible. And he and my grandmother supported his siblings for months. I, I asked my dad, I said, dad, how long was your father in this state? He said, I can't remember, but it was somewhere between two to six months. And I said, two to six months, your dad, what did he do? He said, he just sat in his bed. I said, did he talk? No. Did he communicate at all? He said, no, we would feed him. My mom would, my you know, mother would feed him with a spoon, you know, change his diapers, wash him down as well as work. And I said, did you ever leave hope? Did you ever lose hope or faith? That, And he said, no. He said, my mother would always talk about when dad, when dad is healed, when dad comes through, when dad, and he said, I never even, I never even considered that there would be a time that my father would not be healed. He said, I never even considered it. I never even, it never came into my mind. I'm 14 years old, 15 years old. I just believe my mom. She says, dad's going to be fine someday. Dad's going to be fine. My grandmother and grandfather used to have this um, ministry that if a visiting pastor or somebody coming to give a testimony would come to their little four square church, that my grandmother would always have them over for dinner on Sunday, Sunday dinner. My grandmother would make a great big Sunday dinner with the best and most difficult homemade rolls that you could ever try to make. But she would invite them over for dinner and she was a, a wondrous cook. I never knew it really because she passed away when I was four. But on one of those occasions, a Prince Marthunden came to dinner. He was an Indian prince. He came from a wealthy regal Indian family. But they had disassociated from him when he became a believer in Jesus. But he still had his wealth and his inheritance. And he used to drive my dad to a white Cadillac. And he would go to different churches and share about how Jesus met him and saved him. And he had been over to my grandmother and grandfather's house for dinner. Well, he was driving through Santa Ana, California. 
And the Lord spoke to his heart and said, I want you to go to Brother Smith's house and want you to pray for him. Well, he hadn't seen my grandparents in at least a year, but he drove his white Cadillac and he parked it in front of my grandparents' house and he went and he knocked on the door and my grandmother answered. And he said, I'm here to pray for Brother Smith. The Lord has just put him on my heart. And my grandmother led him back to the back bedroom where my grandfather was in bed. And Prince Marthondon laid his hands on my grandfather and said, Mr. Smith, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And my grandpa, without losing a beat, looked up and said, well, Prince Marthondon, what are you doing here? And from that moment on, he went back to selling refrigerators and then real estate. I agree. You never heard that from my dad, Chuck Smith. But these are the stories I got when I did Thanksgiving dishes with him in the kitchen. I asked him all these questions. But you know, it was patience. Patience, faith and patience that inherits the promise. There will always be a time element between the promise and its fulfillment. Do not give up on seeing the doctor in the waiting room. Don't leave the waiting room till you've seen the doctor. Isn't that what we do? We make our appointment, we go into the waiting room, and 10 minutes before they call our name, we leave and give up on the doctor. Dr. Jesus, do not leave the waiting room until you've seen the doctor. The absolute surety of God's promises is seen in verses 13 through 18. And he gives us Abraham. He just said, look at those who by faith and patience. And now he brings up Abraham. Abraham is an example of someone who received the promise of God through faith and patience. God swore to him. Here is security, he says. The security is that God swore to him. God made an oath or a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant was based on God because there's no higher power than God. When God speaks, it's absolute. It's authoritative because this is God and there is no higher authority. There is no greater truth than God himself. God's word is verifiable. It is true. We talked about this last week and the week before it's proven. So God gave Abraham the promise, surely blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. And after Abraham patiently endured, he received the promise, Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise through whom God will fulfill the rest of his promises. God used Abraham to show us the security of his promises. They are sure because God promised and there's no higher word or authority than God. And he confirmed his promise to us with an oath or a covenant. Jesus is the covenant of God. He's the oath. He's where we can see God means it because he sent his son to die on the cross. It's signed and sealed. God's counsel is immutable. God's word cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. His word is absolute. What he said is what he said. God's character, God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. He only tells the truth and he will only tell the truth. In John 14 too, Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. She says, I wouldn't lie to you. 
Jesus does not lie. God does not lie. God wants you secure. In verse 16, the author uses the phrase to end all dispute. In other words, to get rid of any insecurities and all insecurities. To stop the fighting and the battle within you. Then verse 17, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. He is determined to secure you. He he, he goes overboard to make you feel secure. He confirmed his promises to us. They're confirmed, they're seen in Jesus. That we might have, verse 18, strong consolation. Absolute security. That when we doubt, we can go to God's word and say, nope, it's so, I am secure. Security that you're an heir of promise. Security to those who have fled for refuge and laid hold of the hope before us. That you might feel so secure. I'm holding on to Jesus. And I am secure. Our security does not rest in what we've done or the answer to all our questions or our feelings, but in what God has done and says he has done for us. It's in his word and in his oath through Jesus. Therefore, our steadfast hope is Jesus. He is our security. He is the anchor of our soul. He is the word of God. He is the oath of God. He is sure and steadfast. He has entered God's presence behind the veil. He has entered the unseen place, the forbidden place, the exclusive place, the place for only the righteous, the holiest place of all with the sacrifice of his blood. And in so doing, he has anchored us forever to God. We are secure through Jesus Christ. Forever, our salvation is sure. Our future with God in Christ, in heaven, in the millennium, in the age to come is secured in Christ. Our perfection, our immortality, our glorification, our deliverance today is secured. We secure for all, we are secured for all the promises of God through Christ Jesus. Hope is not wishful thinking, but the basis of our qualification before God. Biblical hope is the security that we rest in so we can receive all that God has promised. It's time to leave the questions behind. Press forward in faith. Press forward in patience. It's time to say goodbye, immaturity. Goodbye, insecurity. Because God wants to move us on into greater depths, greater revelation, greater understanding, greater promises, greater power, greater fulfillment, greater testimony. God wants to move us, propel us forward. And God desires that we be absolutely secure in our faith that we might receive the revelation, the understanding, the promises, the power, the fulfillment, the testimony, that we might see his promises. You know, God's going to fulfill his promise, but are you going to see it? Are you going to experience it? Are you going to be on the outside saying, I wish? You ever have someone go home and go, oh my goodness, you should have been at that wedding. You wouldn't have believed it. 
you know, this thing happened. You're like, oh, I wanted to go to that wedding. I wish I had been there. Ever do that? Oh, I missed that moment. I wish. That's how the promise of faith is. You don't want to miss the moment. I'm just going to do one more story really quickly. I used to coordinate weddings here at Calvary. I was doing a wedding. Brian had been out surfing with the junior high because he used to be the junior high pastor. Now he was doing a tour of Korean pastors who all had their cameras with them. They had all come and I was coordinating a wedding. Brian was wearing his surf shorts because my dad just called him and said, hey, I need you now. I don't have time. I've got to do this wedding. So he's up here doing the wedding and he he introduced Brian to the Korean pastors. There's Brian in flip-flops covered in sand with a tank top and board shorts on, right? And he's got these Korean pastors all in suits with cameras around their neck. He brings them in the back in the foyer just to see the wedding. And they say, oh, they don't speak English. And they all come flooding down the aisle in the middle of the wedding. And I'm coordinating the wedding and I'm helpless. And Brian is not wearing the attire to bring these men back. And they come right up on stage and start taking pictures with the bride and groom and with Pasal Chuck. And I'm saying to Brian, you've got to do something. You have got to do something. And the people in the wedding, they didn't know what to do. But hallelujah, they started laughing. Everyone started laughing. I'll tell you, that wedding was unforgettable. They have wedding memories that are unique to them and no one else has. And that's what I told them when they came out. Wow, what a wedding. (laughs) I bet nobody else can put that in their book. (laughs) I hope I still have a job. But there they are. And Brian goes to the back door and he whistles. (laughs) And then goes, like this, and they go, oh, Pasa Brian, bye, Pasa Chuck, and they all file out. You missed that wedding. That was a wedding. You don't want to miss. You don't want to miss when faith and the promises are fulfilled. You don't want to miss it. You want to be there. You want to be all present. You want to see it, and you're going to need faith and patience. All the questions will be understood and fully, fully realized as we secure ourselves in Christ. Jesus is the surety to all the promises of God. He is the reason we can trust that the rain that falls on our life will bear fruit, be useful to God, and bring blessing. Our security is based in Jesus, what he said and what he's done. He's our anchor. He's our surety. When the insecurities begin to flood in and the questions begin to come, grab Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. Just believe in Jesus. Go deeper into Jesus. Just read the Gospels and say, Lord, take me deeper, deeper in the love of Jesus. Daily may I go. Let's pray. Lord, you know our insecurities and you know what they're based on. But Lord, the true answers, the true reason and cause for insecurities is just that we haven't gone deep enough, long enough. And Lord, I pray that we would go deeper into you, that we would get such a hold on you and that we would make you our security, and our identity. Thank you for calling. In Jesus' name, amen.